Well, like Gil said, my name's Wes. Uh, I'm our lead pastor here at Crossbridge. I want to welcome you to Easter. Those of you who are new here today, special welcome. I know anytime you come somewhere new, it uh, can be a little you know, anxiety provoking. So we want to thank you for being a part of here. Um, Gil didn't mention this, uh, that subtle flex with the glasses. We're actually Crossbridge Christian Church brought to you by uh, Ray-Ban now. So uh, you, know, you got to pay the bills somehow. So that's how we do it. Um, so so uh, this is also the Easter sermon presented by Wells Fargo. So we'll have a word from our sponsor later on. Um, we have been in a series of messages where we've been talking about seven words to change your life. And uh, over the past six weeks, we've talked about six words, right? So these are words that we see uh, used a lot in Scripture, used a lot in the Bible, that if we'll put them into practice, can have the power to shape and change us in a meaningful way. So we started, we talked about the word no and how that can be a powerful word. We've talked about the word yes, uh, the word enough, the word sorry. That's a real game changer for a lot of us. Uh, thanks. We've talked about the word help. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about one final word, the word wow. Uh, so if we can, uh, if you would, just wherever you are, I just want you, and online too, if you're in a coffee shop, you're going to look real weird. So I apologize, but let's all just together on a count of three. Let's just say wow together. Wow. One, two, three. Wow. wow. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so. Uh, when I think of wow, um, you're, some of you are going to judge me, some of you are going to love me, so I apologize for that in advance. But when I think of wow, one of the places I think of wow is uh, in the arena of sports. Um, so in 2019, uh, this guy, my favorite athlete of all time, Tiger Woods, won the Masters Tournament. Now, I grew up playing a lot of golf. I'd play every Tuesday in the summer with my grandfather and uh, his old man buddies. I learned a lot on the golf course, mostly four-letter words that I didn't know previously. And uh, like, like, fun, I don't know. Anyway, that's not even a four-letter word. That was a good job. Anyway, I'm a pastor, not a math major. So, uh, But I grew up uh, playing golf when Tiger Woods was kind of making his arrival on the scene. And some of you know the saga of Tiger Woods, and you know, like, he has suffered a number of debilitating injuries. He's got some self-inflicted wounds. Some of you remember a very, uh, very famous uh, Thanksgiving Day incident where a uh, uh, angry wife discovered he uh, had been cheating on her, and that did not turn out well for Tiger. Uh, but heading into the 2019 Masters, a few years before, Tiger had attempted to come back because he had suffered basically a super severe back injury. He actually had to get spinal fusion surgery, and uh, Tiger, by his own admission, was thinking. I mean, I'd be happy to walk again, let alone play golf again. And sure enough, though, on 2019 at the Masters Tournament, most important tournament that gets played every year, I can remember I'm eating lunch at, I think now it's Momo's on Pensacola, but back then it was like Mellow Mushroom, I think. And I'm eating lunch, and I am like glued to the screen. Like every shot Tiger hits, I am like living and dying with what happens. And finally, when he got to 18, uh, it was clear he was going to win the tournament, and this is what ensued. And I just remember thinking, wow, like this guy is like good as dead. There is no, he hasn't won a major tournament in like 10 years. Like there is no hope for this guy. And, and here he is, top of the world, winning the most important golf tournament in the world, the Masters. When I think, wow, I think of another, my second favorite athlete, who is this lady right here, Serena Williams. And uh, uh, in our home, uh, there's probably about five to seven year period where Serena, I mean, she was dominant is not even a tough enough word for what Serena, I mean, like 
you did not want to see Serena Williams on the other side of the net, but like you could just withdraw. I mean, like I'm going to lose, right? Uh, because Serena Williams to watch her do her thing on a tennis court is just a wow. Like the power, the grit. Like I mean, just in our home, she was appointment viewing in every Grand Slam tournament. My wife and I are sitting, and again, we're like dying by each shot, every forehand, every serve, right? We are watching it because Serena Williams is just a wow. Like, you know, I mean, the goatiest goat there ever is right there, if I can say that. A third wow for me, this probably won't mean anything to you, but as an Ohio kid, this meant a lot to me. Uh, this guy, uh, LeBron James, which is French for the Bron, uh, I learned. And uh, I remember Cleveland had not won a sports championship since the Browns in like the 60s. And if you know anything about the Browns, you know they are not really that close to winning a championship anytime soon. I don't even, I'm a Cincinnati sports guy. I don't even like Cleveland sports. They're the only basketball team in Ohio we've got. And I will never forget watching the 2016 NBA Finals. Cleveland Cavaliers, I think we're down. 3-1, three, three, maybe 3-2 in a seven-game series. And they're playing the Golden State Warriors, led by Steph Curry, who had that season recorded the most wins in NBA history in a single season. They had 73 wins. They were literally, over an 82-game season, the most dominant team of all time. Cleveland had no business winning this series, okay? It was LeBron James and a bunch of Joe, average Joes, right? Like, I could not tell, I, I can only remember that J.R. Smith is on this team because he is in the side of this picture. Like, that's the only reason I remember it. But I remember, I'm like watching this game in the fourth quarter. Some of you remember this footage, right? LeBron had the block, Kyrie had the shot, you know, like, it, like, I just could not believe as they're here in the Golden State Warriors home court for game seven, the, the ragtag Cleveland Cavaliers win Ohio's first pro sports championship in like 50 years. And I was like, wow, like this is incredible. You know, uh, I, I just could not believe it. And apparently, if you look at LeBron's expression, he couldn't believe it either. He is pretty, pretty surprised. I think that's the greatest thing he has probably ever done is taking that group to an NBA championship. Now, Lest you think I'm like the shallowest person in the world, the only things I go wow at are like sports events. I do have things in my life I go wow at too, right? Um, I remember I got married and like pretty soon after I got married, like I, I was just kind of sitting and like, wow, I'm like married. Like I'm like, yeah, thank you. I got so beautiful. Uh, I am, I'm married. Like I'm gonna be with this person the rest of my life. Like that's a wow, you know? I'm sure she was also going, wow, you know, for a lot of reasons. Um, like that. I remember the first time I got a promotion at work, and it was like the first time I had been praying, 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 praying for like months that I would get this promotion, I would get this opportunity. Um, it's the hardest I'd ever prayed for anything in my life up to that point. And when it finally came through and like I got the promotion, I was like, wow, you know, like this is amazing. I can't believe this is happening, you know. Um, you know, like I, I, I'm so happy when I see people who've been trying to have a kid for the longest time. You know, they have a kid and just see them, you know, with the kids, like wow, you know, or all these kind of different things. I mean, honestly, sometimes I like be driving. You know, I'm driving on a canopy road here, and it's like a nice summer evening, or you know, you're walking in the park, and it's just you know, the sunlight comes through the trees, just right, and and you go, wow, right, wow, this is amazing. Like even just the simple stuff like that. Wow is the word that we say when we don't know what else to say. Um, there's this tradition in, uh, let's, like 2,000 years old in Christianity, uh, where on Easter Sunday, a pastor or someone will stand up and they'll say to the congregation, Christ the Lord is risen today. 
and the people will respond and they'll say, he is risen indeed. Now that sounds really nice and churchy. I think that's really lame, right? Because I think on, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, no one was standing outside the tomb going, he is risen indeed. You know, that's, that's very nice. Good job, Lord, golf clap, right? No, people are going, wow, like I did not see that one coming, right? Like this is this puts Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James shame right here. You know, some, some dope is probably going to get up 2,000 years later and say that's a wow. But this, this is the original wow right here. You know, this, this is amazing. This is a wow, you know. And so today, I want to talk about this. Now, um, those of you watching online, those of you here in service today, one of the things I love about our church is our church, uh, you do not have to believe in order to belong here. Uh, that's a really important value for us. And uh, so I recognize on a day like Easter, there's a lot of people who kind of find themselves here in our church today or watching online today, right? Some of us, we find ourselves in church because it's like, you know, this pinnacle of my faith and I want to do it, right? For some of us, it's kind of like, a, yeah, I should probably go to church. I haven't done that in a while. And for others of us, we're kind of like at various levels of kind of belief in this Christianity story. You know, some of us, we're kind of at a spot where it's like, I'm open to it. Like, I don't know if I really believe it. You know, whatever that is. some of us are cynical. You know, you're here because it's like, well, my wife told me I needed to come, so I'm coming, you know, that kind of thing. And I get that. I understand that. I'm really glad all you guys are here. You know, I'm, I'm really pleased with that and happy to see that. Um, my goal here today is twofold. Um, I want to talk about the, the wow of Easter. I want to talk about, you know, the resurrection, that Jesus has rose from the dead. And I just want to, like, put my cards on the table here, right, unsurprising to you. But, um, like, I believe, and the leadership of this church believes that 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday, a guy named Jesus, who had previously died a couple days earlier, actually, not just, like, in some spiritual, happy, ethereal kind of way, but, like, Flesh and blood, physical reality, like actually went from being undead, or I'm sorry, that, sorry, messed that up. Good job by me. Went from being dead to being like alive again, right? He 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 undeaded, and not in like the creepy, you know, zombie apocalypse kind of way. Like he he was back, you know, better than ever, right? And Jesus actually rose from the dead. Like he that actually is a real thing that happened in real history with real flesh and blood people. And I recognize to make that claim is a pretty big claim. Um, as the theology professor taught the first day of one of my theology classes I took in college said, he said, let's be real folks. We believe a lot of really weird things in the Christian faith. And then the dead guy is no longer dead is probably at the top of the list of those weird things we believe, right? So I know that's a big thing. But I believe there are actually reasons we can believe that happened. And not just in like a, well, I'm hoping, right? But like in an actual real, no, this actually happened. And I want to talk about some of those today as we read through the Easter story. And then I want to finish by talking about today, so why does that matter? Like why does what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago with some Jewish carpenter, like why, why should I care? You know, like I don't care about the carpenters that live in Tallahassee unless I need work done on my home, right? So like, why should I care about this random dude from 2,000 years ago? Well, I'm glad you asked, so I want to talk about that. So um, to do so, we're going to look at one of the biographical accounts of Jesus' life and his teaching. Now, the Bible actually has four biographies of Jesus' life. Um, two of them were written by his disciples, so people that were literally right there watching everything happen. One was written by a guy named Mark, who had a really famous cousin. You might know him. Uh, his name is Peter. We'll talk about him a little later on. But Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, and so we're pretty sure Peter didn't know how to read or write, uh, so he just kind of dictated all he knew and saw to Mark, and Mark wrote it down for him. 
But today we're actually going to look at the biography of Jesus' life from a guy named Luke. Now, Luke was a medical doctor, and uh, Luke, from what we can tell, was commissioned by this guy named Theophilus, who either was a Christian or was curious about Christianity in the first century, and asked Luke, hey Luke, um, you're a pretty thorough guy. You know, I kind of imagine Luke is the guy where, like, he's ready if the IRS ever tries to audit him, right? He's the guy that's like, oh yeah, I got every expense from 2007, right? Oh, do you need August? Okay, yeah, I got that. Uh, you know, like, like he, he is just a guy who had everything lined up to a T, I imagine. And Luke, as he opens his biography of Jesus' life, he says this to, to us, his audience. He writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Uh, he continues to say, uh, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he's basically saying, hey, what I'm recording for you is simply the result of my investigation of like the people who saw it. Like basically I interviewed eyewitnesses and kind of tracked down all these stories for you. In the next verse, Luke tells us, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully invested everything from the beginning, investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's the guy we think asked Luke if he would put this together for him. And Luke finishes his opening by saying, so that you might know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So here's what Luke says. Hey, Theophilus, I, I interviewed all the eyewitnesses of this stuff. I myself did kind of like a first century, you know, like on WTXL when they've got like the I team, you know, and it's like, we're going to find out if, if local school cafeterias are messing with your apple juice, be back at 11, you know, or whatever, right? Like when they do that, that was kind of what Luke was doing, right? He was kind of like the first century I team. And he says, here's my goal. I want you to know as a result of reading this document, as a result of the research I put into this document, that this isn't some pie-in-the-sky belief in Jesus. This is like a real, actual, living, flesh-and-blood thing that normal, rational people can actually believe in, okay? And so if you're kind of skeptical of the Christian message, I, I, I understand. I get it. I just encourage you, as we read this passage today about the resurrection account from Luke, think of it this way. I'm not reading the Bible. I'm reading a first century eyewitness compiled account from a guy who's just trying to write down some important information about the most important person who ever lived. And you can kind of decide to do with that what you want. You and I may disagree on the role of that in our lives. That's fine. But I just want to encourage you. This isn't like the Bible, some like spooky, mysterious, faith-filled document, right? Like this is actually a real guy talking to other real people about real events and trying to give us an account of the most important person who ever lived, right? So I think even if we don't believe in Jesus, we owe it to ourselves to kind of interact with and engage with that. Okay, so Luke tells us this, Luke 24. Luke says, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went into the tomb, the tomb where Jesus is. Now I want to stop and observe two things here, okay? First thing is this. Women were taking spices to the tomb. Now it wasn't like, I, now it wasn't like well, we were thinking we we're going to have like Taco Tuesday at the tomb, you know. So you got the paprika, you know, right? Like these are embalming spices, right? They're coming to embalm uh, Jesus' body because they, like every other normal person, expected, hey, I watched my friend Jesus die. 
I watched Jesus be buried in this tomb. I'm going to go to this tomb with stuff to embalm the body I think is in the tomb, right? Because dead people typically stay dead, right? They are, it wasn't like no one on Easter morning was standing outside the tomb going, five, four, three, you know, this wasn't the Kennedy Space Center, right? This is like, you know, hey, we expect we can come at 11 if we want, because again, He's dead. He's not going anywhere. Okay, here's what you need to understand about Easter. On the original Easter Sunday, nobody expected nobody. Okay, we should just make our peace with that, right? They're just like us. When people die, they stay dead, right? These ladies came to embalm a body because they expected to find a body there. Okay, here's another thing that we should think about. The first witnesses to the resurrection are women. Okay, now, ladies. This is not what I believe. I'm just here to report to you the facts, okay? In the first century, you had it pretty tough if you were a lady, okay? Women couldn't give testimony in court, in like Roman court. So like if I committed a crime and only witnesses were women, I was going to get off scot-free, right? Um, and what's further, the Jews had an even lower viewpoint of women in the first century. Again, not my viewpoint, just telling you how it is. If you were going to create an account that was a fictional account of how Jesus rose from the dead... You would not put women as the first people who noticed Jesus had risen from the tomb, okay? That would be like me trying to fabricate a story and being like, hey, I know who I want my two primary witnesses to be. I want them to be a guy with a huge financial stake in lying about what happened and another guy with a rap sheet as long as a CVS receipt. Those are my two star witnesses, right? You would never do that, right? If you're trying to write a fictitious account, that's not what you would do, okay? Just want to point that out. Next verses. Luke tells us, They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Uh, so, they, uh, <laughs> they are like, what's going on here? Like, like what, what happened here? There's no body here. And one of the interesting things about Easter is it's really easy for us to kind of say, hey, like, dead people don't rise from the dead. But the Easter story isn't just that, hey, like, dead people rise from the dead. Like, if you are cynical about the story of Jesus, one of the things that you owe it to yourself to be intellectually honest about is you have to have an accounting for why on Easter Sunday the tomb is empty. On Friday, Jesus was put to death by the ruling authorities in the Palestinian world because they believed Jesus posed a threat to the empire. They thought if Jesus could continue doing his Jesus thing, it was just a matter of days or weeks before the Roman Empire in Palestine was going to be overthrown. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but typically people with a lot of power who have a really important to them agenda, right? They, they will stop at nothing to make sure that agenda gets accomplished. And there's a reason why, even in the first century account, Luke wrote his account probably about 25 to 35 years after the resurrection, right? So the people who are around are like still alive. You know, it's not like this happened hundreds of years later that Luke wrote this down for us. No one in the first century ever came up with this argument. Of course Jesus didn't rise from the dead. His body is right there, right? If I'm the Roman authorities and I'm trying to put down this Jesus movement, right, 
I'm going to not hesitate whatsoever to be like, silly Christians, tricks are for kids, right? You're at the wrong tomb, right? you got to go over here. Here's Jesus. He's only been dead three days. See, you can still recognize him. You can still look at him, right? But in the first century, here's what we discover. Everyone who tries to explain away the resurrection never says, what empty tomb? Well, what, what like empty, you know, disappeared body, right? Like, like what about, nope, no one says that, right? Because the opponents of the Jesus movement in the first century concede that the empty tomb on Easter morning is a fact. And it's us, right? If we want to be cynical about the message of Jesus, fine. But we have to have an explanation that passes muster for why the empty tomb. Luke continues his story. And he says that while, while they, while the women were wondering about this, which I love, right? They didn't get to the tomb and go, oh, Jesus must have risen. Of course, duh. Mary, I told you to remember that. You know, like that wasn't what they did. Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men, angels, said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, the disciples, and the others, kind of like the wider group of people that were followers of Jesus. And ladies, if you believe none of the Bible, you can believe that one, this next verse, because here's the next verse in you know, two verses later. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense, right? So you'll be happy to know that when your husband ignores you, it's only, he's trying hard. It's just 2,000 years of habit, you know, basically, right? And so he does, they do this, right? And what I love about this story, and part of the reason why I believe this story, is because nowhere, like, everyone reacts to this news exactly the way I would react. No one's first response to the empty tomb is, well, Jesus must have risen, right? No, nope. everyone goes through the same pattern. There's shock, then there's disbelief, and then finally, like after a lot of poking, a lot of prodding, and an appearance or two from Jesus, they move to belief, right? Thomas is the famous disciple who said, hey, I'm not gonna believe Jesus rose from dead until I put my, fing uh, holes in, I put my fingers in the holes in his hand and his side and all that kind of thing, right? And everyone gives Thomas a real hard time. I'm kind of like, Thomas, you are one of my people, right? Because I am not going to listen to these yahoos over here, right? Believe in it. Like, and I also love that Jesus, when he rises, he's like, hey, Thomas, thought you might want to put, uh, thought you might want to, you know, hey, check it out. You know, right? Like, I kind of like that Jesus does a little trash talking right there. Anyway, uh, here's kind of the thing, right? These disciples, they don't believe it. Now, one of the things that kind of has been proposed is, well, maybe the disciples actually, like, stole the body or something like that, right? I would just say, hey, that solution might feel creative. That's actually not very creative. You can read the Gospel of Matthew. That's actually the very first kind of excuse that people cooked up uh, for the resurrection of Jesus. But here's something I'll just invite you to consider. These 11 disciples remaining, they, before the crucifixion of Jesus, they were doing everything they could to distance themselves from Jesus. Like, none of them stood at the cross. None of them stood by him in his hour of greatest need. None of them is like this picture of a profile and courage, right? Amen. And yet, strangely, after Jesus' resurrection, supposed resurrection, right, they can't shut up about the guy. They can't stop talking about the guy. 
They, they, in fact, they keep talking about Jesus like we forget this, right? 2,000 years ago, there was no, like today when people talk about Jesus, sometimes they do it to get rich, you know? Like that's kind of, they're trying to build an audience, trying to build their brand, you know, whatever. 2,000 years ago, that wasn't a thing, guys. Christianity was like the amount of people that sit in this room right now, okay? We're talking a few dozen people, right? Why do these men, why, why do they persist in talking about Savior when all the talking about Jesus does gets them tortured, gets them beaten, gets them poor and penniless, gets them no political influence, right? There, there's no Christian right that's proposing their presidential candidate, you know, for Rome or anything like that, right? Like, why are they doing they, they stand nothing to gain. I love the story of a guy named Chuck Colson. Some of you might know who Chuck Colson is. Uh, Chuck Colson was the chief legal advisor to uh, President Nixon in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. Uh, one of Chuck Colson's contemporaries said Chuck Colson uh, was the evil mind behind an evil administration. So there's a nice discreet, you know, I want that on my tombstone. The evil mind of an evil administration, right? And when Watergate, you know, he was one of the guys that knew what was going on in Watergate. Yeah. And Chuck Colson later became a Christian when he was in prison for his involvement in the Watergate scandal. And what's interesting to me is Chuck Colson says, in reflecting on that, he says, you know, when we were faced with possible consequences for all of our involvement in Watergate scandal, which again, like our consequences are, we're gonna sit in a US prison cell, right? Which is way nicer than what the disciples were gonna go through. Yeah. We couldn't go fast enough to start singing like a canary, man, right? If, that, if it was gonna get me a day off of my sentence, right? I couldn't wait to shove and push my way to the front of the line to talk to some prosecutor to make sure that things were better for me and things were harder for them. And yet, interestingly enough, every single disciple of Jesus went to their death saying, this guy rose from the dead. Yes. They were all martyred for their faith. They suffered unspeakable horrors that none of us would ever want. Yes. My favorite is the Apostle John had hot wax poured on his back and then ripped off to rip all of his back skin off. So, you know, hey, just saying, don't know that I'd be in that deep if I knew the whole Jesus thing was a lie. You know, call me, judge me away. You know, like, I'm not sure about that, right? These guys went through literal hell and back because they didn't just die for something they believed in. They died for something they said they saw. Yes. Something that made them go, wow. And if what they died for is a wow that actually happened, there are a number of wows that unlocks for us. I want to talk today as we wrap up about three of them. Here's the first wow. Wow. I'm welcomed. Um, I just want to look at the lives of three people in Jesus' circle to talk about this. Romans, it's a letter written to uh, in the New Testament to first century Christians and to us today. In Romans 5, 8, Paul, the guy writing this, says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What that means is when I wasn't interested in God whatsoever, he was still interested in me. Amen. When I wasn't pursuing God, God was pursuing me. And God wasn't pursuing me because he wanted to pay me back. God was pursuing me because he wanted to win me back. The story of Jesus is a story of God saying, I'm going to come down to their messy, sweaty, gross, messed up earth 
because it matters that much to me to chase after people who honestly couldn't even give a rip about me. We see this in the life of three people who were unquestionably welcomed in to the kingdom of Jesus. I want to talk to you about three. I want to talk to you about Jesus' brother, Jesus' buddy, and Jesus' bully. Okay, thanks to Naomi in the back for helping me out with that this morning. Yeah, shout out. We crowdsourced this sermon earlier so she could, so she could give me some nice alliteration. Let's talk about Jesus' brother. Uh, Jesus had two brothers that we know about named James and Jude. They both wrote books of the Bible, okay? So it's fair to say by the end of their lives, they were on the end of the, you know, Jesus movement. They were leaders in the church. But if you read the Gospels, if you read the biographies of Jesus' life, what you see is James and Jude both, like I would, I add, they, when they would hear Jesus going around saying, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah, you know that Messiah you've been waiting for for a couple thousand years? I'm the guy, I'm him, you know, like, I, I just thought you should know, you know. James, Jude, and the rest of Jesus' siblings were like, this guy is off his rocker. Like, this guy is crazy. This guy is insane. We need to have him committed. Like, Jesus, can you just, like, shut up about the Son of God stuff? You are, like, really making family gatherings really, really hard, right? It's like when it's like today at Easter when you go to, like, family dinner, and there's, like, one person just, like, won't shut up about politics, and you're like... We're just trying to love everyone right now. Can we please be quiet, right? You know, like that's what Jesus was to his family. Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, that, I know that feeling. Uh, and so, uh, anyway, and so, like, they were like, Jesus, what are you doing? Now, Jesus, later on, like, they, they become proponents of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, those of you who've attended Crossroads for a while, you know the question I'm going to ask, right? Brian Cook, right. Brian could ask it for me, probably, right? <laughs> What would your brother have to do to convince you he was the son of God, right? That's a really great question for us just to think about. I have one sister. I guarantee you there is nothing Jenny Marie Blackburn can do to convince me she is 1% God, let alone 100% God, okay? I think James and Jude are the greatest argument we have that Jesus actually was who he says he was because apparently at some point, James, Jesus, and Jude all had a little conversation. And James and Jude were apparently swayed. And like, whoa, I thought you, mom told me you died a couple days ago. Like, why, how are we talking right now? You know, it's like, I don't know. You know, it's kind of weird stuff happening, right? And so they're welcomed into the family of God. Jesus' buddy. I want to talk about a guy named Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Peter, before Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified, yes. Peter said, Jesus, these guys over here, they're lame. They, they stink. They are not your friends. I am your real friend. And no matter what happens, Jesus, you've been saying some real dark stuff lately. We don't really understand what you're saying. But Jesus, like, I'm your ride or die. Like, I'm with you all the way, dude. And then when Jesus gets arrested, Peter is running for the hills. Like, he can't get out of Dodge fast enough, right? And Peter is asked at several points, may you know this story, right? Peter's asked three times by different people, hey, do you know Jesus? And Peter's like, Jesus, I don't know. Let me, uh, let me look up my contacts here. Yeah, I don't have a Jesus in here. I'll check my Facebook friend, right? Like, he has no idea who he is, who, who they're asking him about, right? So Peter is probably the only person, when he found out that Jesus rose from the dead, he's probably the only disciple who's like, crap. <laughs> like, ah, oh, dang it. That's going to be real awkward. Um, and so you can read it, John chapter 21. Jesus and Peter have a conversation. Jesus invites Peter once again to be his follower. And he says, Peter, let's, let's get real for a second. 
do so good a couple days ago, right? Like that didn't turn out too well for you. That's okay. I, I want you to be my guy. And sure enough, if you read, you know, in the, in the first century history of the church, I mean, Peter's the guy, you know. When, when someone stands up on the first day that the church opens up, Acts 2.38, right? That's Peter standing up there giving the sermon. If you read the book of Acts in the Bible, it's like the history of the early church. I mean, Peter just cannot shut up about Jesus. It's like, you know, you're like, ask Peter, hey, Peter, pass the salt. And he'll be like, hey, you know who the salt of the earth is? Jesus, you know, <laughs> I'm going to stand up and preach now. You know, like he does all that kind of stuff, right? He just will not be quiet about Jesus, right? Peter, despite totally letting go of Jesus in his hour of greatest need, I mean, think about how you feel when you have someone you thought was a friend, and then when you needed them, they disappeared from your life, right? Those people, I'm kind of like, well, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me, right? I'll see you later, right? Not Jesus. Jesus invites Peter back into the fold. He welcomes him back into the fold. Let's talk about Jesus' bully. A guy uh, we meet named Saul of Tarsus. And the first time we meet Saul of Tarsus, he's a Jewish leader, and uh, the Jews are stoning. They're putting to death uh, this guy named Stephen, who is a really outspoken follower of Jesus. And Saul is standing there watching everyone put this guy to death, and he's just kind of, good job, fellas. God is so proud right now. I am so proud of you, right? And Saul actually hates Christians and Christianity and Jesus so much that he dedicates his entire life to wiping Christianity and Christ off of the face of the earth. Yeah. Like, as literally his, if Paul had a mission statement, it was destroy Christianity. Like, that, that's it, okay? Paul would go from town to town and place to place. He would find all the Christians. He would round them up. He'd throw them in jail. He'd imprison them, which is the same thing as throwing them in jail. He would torture. I just want to make sure he got the jail part. Um, he would torture them. He would beat them. It's very likely he would kill some of them. And he would basically do anything he could until they would yell, Uncle, I give up on the Jesus thing. I promise I'm never going to talk about Jesus again. I promise I'm done. Right? That was, that was Paul's life. And then one day when Paul was going to Damascus to do this same exact thing, the resurrected Jesus appears to him. And they have a real fun little conversation. And Jesus says, hey, homie, we should chat for a little bit. And surprisingly, Paul become, well, Saul becomes a Christian. And the change in his life is so severe that he now moves from calling himself Saul to Paul. He's like starting off on a whole new page. Paul, like the first time Paul went to church, everyone in the church, we're told, was like, Paul's here. Like, is this a setup? Is this like on Dateline when they have like the setup and you like walk into the house and it's like, ah, you're going to jail, you know, or whatever, right? Like, like, is he here to round us up and like, take, like, Paul actually needed people to vouch for him to be like, no, guys, seriously, it's cool. Like, he, he's a Jesus person now, right? Jesus' greatest enemy, his greatest opponent, changed to become Jesus' greatest advocate. The most important person in Christian history other than Jesus is Paul the Apostle. Paul wrote half of the books of the New Testament. Yes. We are gathered here in a room 5,000 miles away from where the resurrection happened, 2,000 years after the resurrection happened because of Paul the Apostle. Okay? Amen. If Jesus can welcome a brother who thought he was insane, a buddy who is not really that much of a buddy when it counted, and the bully, who bully is an understatement, 
I'm pretty sure whatever we have done, God is willing to welcome you. And God is willing to welcome me. Because again, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the second wow of Easter. Wow. God's working. Even in the bad stuff. Even in the bad stuff. This morning, um, I was sitting down. I was reading my Bible. As I say, you know, I, that's all I do. I just read my Bible and talk to you on the weekends. That's, those are my only two activities in life. And uh, as I'm reading my Bible this morning, I'm reading the resurrection account from another one of Jesus' followers, a guy named John. And John tells us this, like the women come to the tomb, they see the tomb's empty, they peer in, they're not sure what's happening. And this woman named Mary Magdalene, who's one of Jesus' followers, is like, she's like, I just came to like pay my final respects to my friend. Like I just wanted to come, I wanted to embalm him, I wanted to give him a proper burial, a proper send off, like, like, please. Like, and then she walks up, she sees the body isn't there, and she's like, where's my friend? Like, I just wanted to say goodbye to my friend. And so she turns, she's asked by the angels at the tomb, like, hey, uh, why, why are you crying? And she turns and she says, well, they have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. Now, before we look at the next verse, how many of us at different points in our lives have thought to ourselves, Jesus feels like he's disappeared. And I don't know where he went. The next verse, I think, sheds so much light. John tells us that this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. How many times in life are we looking for God only to later discover he was there the whole time and I just didn't see it? And my limited perspective and my limited understanding just didn't comprehend it. One of the most hope-giving verses to me in the entire Bible, one of the most hope-giving things, Jesus says, is in John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to a group of people. He says, guys, I need you to know this. My Father is always at his work. To this very day, he's been working, he is working, he will be working. He's like that Head and Shoulders commercial with Troy Palomalu where he's like, never not working. Right? <laughs> And just in case that wasn't enough, I too am working. I don't know if I would believe this, if this is Jesus, nice religious teacher who came, lived, died, and said that. Like, that sounds like a nice sentiment. I don't know if that's getting me through the hard times in life. But Jesus, guy who came, called his own death, died, and then called his own resurrection as well and pulled it off three days later, I'm willing to give, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on that. And what Jesus says is, I'm always, my father is always at his work. Always is an unqualified word. Always means always. And I too am working. And what that means is, even when I walk through the crap, the crud, the mess of this life, Jesus is still doing his thing. Jesus is still doing his work. That's a wow. And that leads me into the final wow. Life is coming. 
Now, this is a point where you'd expect someone like me to go like, okay, let's talk about seeing, you know, you turn in like a seven syllable word and, you know, we're going to turn the heat up now to like 82 and, you know, we're going to lock the doors or, you know, whatever, right? When we talk about life, and especially on a day like Easter, we talk about, you know, eternal life. We talk about life after this life, right? And that's important. That's big. That's huge. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, hey, if our only hope is for life in this life, man, we are a pitiable lot. Like, that, that is a crappy hope for life, okay? And so eternal life is huge. Jesus, the most famous verse in the whole Bible. I guarantee you, you've never been to church before in your whole life. You probably know this Bible verse. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says, you can experience life eternally with me if you will place your faith in me. That's a pretty cool promise, okay? But the life that is eternal life, here's what eternal life is by definition. Eternal life isn't just life after this life. Eternal life means like everlasting life, like life that doesn't just start at a later date in the future, but life that actually starts now. That's what makes it eternal, right? It's not just like I'm waiting for it to start. It's eternal. It's right now. It's inaugurated. It's activated now. Jesus is final supper with his disciples. He says this. They didn't understand a single thing he was saying. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you. That's like Jesus speak for, listen up, buckle up. I'm about to tell you something big. It is for your good that I am going away. Which at that point, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, Jesus, I don't, I mean, I don't understand how it's better that you leave. Jesus, we're messing it up with you here. So like you leaving is not going to be good. Um, but Jesus says, unless I go away, the advocate, that's Jesus' word he uses for the Holy Spirit. The advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. What Jesus says is, by me dying and rising from the dead, you're going to experience something bigger and something better. You are going to experience the Holy Spirit's indwelling power and presence within your life, helping you live the life of Jesus as if Jesus were you. The early church understood this. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul, the guy we talked about earlier, he writes, uh, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. A verse some of you may know. It's a verse that gets trotted out all the time on Easter Sunday, and for good reason. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here, right? The image is your life, your new life starts, and it starts right now. You don't have to wait. It's here. Amen. Jesus says, my life is coming, but it's not just coming. It's here. And today, we all have the opportunity to step into that life. To say, Jesus, I'm placing my faith in you. I believe you are who you said you are, the resurrected son of the living God. And Jesus, I'm yielding my will and my way to you. And I know I'm going to get it wrong. I know I'm going to screw it up. I know you're going to correct me on some things, in fact, a lot of things. But Jesus with an offer that good, that's a wow. Amen. Jesus in that same final dinner with his disciples, he, he said this. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. And Jesus says, let me tell you how to get there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus says, I'm the way. And if you will follow me, if you will, if you will yield to the way, you're going to find my Father's house has room for you. Amen. It has room for me. That's a wow. So as we wrap up today, um, I'm going to invite our team up. We're going to sing one last song. But as we do so, I'm going to pray to close this out. And uh, as I pray today, um, I'm just going to kind of pray. I want to give you an opportunity. If you've ever decided to follow Jesus or to, like commit yourself to him, I just want to give you an opportunity to do that right where you sit right now. Um, I'm going to pray a prayer. Um, I'm going to encourage you just to kind of pray it along with me. You can pray in your own language or however you want to do that. That's up to you. Um, but I want to give you an opportunity right now to say, Jesus, I'm in. I'm ready for that. I'm ready to do that. And if you feel scared, right, if you feel like, I don't know if I'm ready for that, good. You understand what you're committing to, right? So the same way like when we get married or we have a kid, right? Like if you're like, oh, this is going to be easy, you don't understand the half of it, right? You, you don't understand what you're opting into. But I want to give us the opportunity to step into that wow, to step into that life of Jesus. So let's pray together today. Lord Jesus, I give you thanks that you've risen from the dead. I give you thanks that 2,000 years later, we are still able to gather here and praise your name and give you thanks uh, for what you have done, what you are continuing to do, and what you will do in our future, in the future of each person listening, in the future of our church, in the future just of all of them. Lord, we trust you. We give you thanks that we are welcomed. We give you thanks, Lord. Um, we give you thanks, God, that you offer us life and life eternal. Lord, we give you thanks. God, that we can seek you and find you, even in the bad stuff. If you're here today and you want to commit to Jesus, just kind of pray along with me. Lord, uh, I admit I'm a sinner. I, I yield to the fact that I've fallen short of your ways. And Lord Jesus, uh, today I simply proclaim you as my Lord as my king, also as my risen savior, as the one who died and rose for me to give me new life, life with you, life abundant, the life your resurrection serves as the reminder of what's in store for us. Uh, we pray this in Christ's perfect, powerful, resurrected name.